So Genesis 3, 1 through 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let's pray. Father God, would you speak to us through your word this morning? Let it not be my words, but your words. We ask that you would teach us what you would have to teach us, and that our lives would be changed as a result. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're familiar with the biblical story, Genesis 3 happens right after Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the entire world. He created the land and the sea and the light and the dark and the fish and the birds and human beings, and he called it all good and very good. And after reading Genesis 1 and 2 and living in the world that we're living in today, we might be left wondering 
Why does our experience of the world not seem to match up with the world that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2? Did God's design for the world really involve 20,000 people dying in an earthquake in Syria and Turkey? Did God's design really involve COVID and cancer, death, depression? Did God's design really involve addiction, divorce, burnout, betrayal? And if that world wasn't supposed to include all of those things, why do we still experience them? And is there any hope for reverting back to the way that things were supposed to be? You know, most people in our world today acknowledge that there is something wrong with the world, that it's not the way that it was supposed to be. Most people acknowledge that uh, some sort of evil exists in the world and even some sort of, of sin or immoral behavior exists in the world, whether or not they define it the same way that Christians do or not. And, and over the, entire, the entirety of human existence, people have speculated as to why these things exist, why evil exists, why sin exists. And we're not going to go into all of these theories because that would be impossible, but this morning I'm just going to talk about one very briefly that seems to be more prevalent in our world today. And, and those who hold to this particular view or a variation of it typically believe that people aren't fundamentally evil or sinful. Instead, they're just a product of their environment. And some people choose to act appropriately given the cards that they've been dealt in life. And some people choose to act inappropriately, given the cards they've been dealt in life. The 4th century African Bishop Augustine, who you might have heard of, Christian theologian, wrote a book called Confessions. And, and in this book, he tells a story where he was out with his friends one night, and he and his friends come across a neighbor's garden that was full of pears. And they steal the pears. And they steal the pears purely for the delight of stealing. And Augustine confesses that his desire to steal the pears was an internal sinful desire that was intrinsic to his nature. About 1,400 years later, in a book also called Confessions, the French philosopher Rousseau wrote what was arguably a response to Augustine. And instead of talking about pears, Rousseau substituted asparagus, and he tells basically the exact same story. But instead, he argues that his stealing of the asparagus wasn't actually driven by sinful impulses inside of him. Instead, the act was driven by a good desire to help his friends who were in need, but that, that action only became corrupted because of the social conditions around him. And many scholars will point to Rousseau as a turning point in the history of Western thought, where the societal norm starts to shift from viewing people as inherently evil, Augustine, to viewing them as inherently good, but merely corrupted by the world around them, Rousseau. And stemming from this philosophical foundation, in this view, the world is divided into good people, People like Gandhi, your grandmother, you name it, right? 
And then it's also, so we have good people, and then we also have people who have chosen to be influenced and embrace the world, evil world around them. So they're influenced by the world around them. They embrace evil in the world. And these are people like corrupt politicians, bank robbers, and my downstairs neighbor who plays the drums at 3 a.m. So, so the solution for evil then is, is to not to just get rid of these evil people. All we need to do is we need to restructure society. Because if, good is, or if evil is imposed on us from society and we're responding to it, we just need to restructure society in a way that only fosters good. And an example of how this has played out can be seen in the arguments in American politics over how to prevent mass shootings. If you remember, roughly a year ago, um, there was a school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And an opinion piece appeared in the Wall Street Journal pretty soon after. And the spokesman for the Texas Department of Public Safety described the gunman this way. She said, the gunman was just a completely evil person. And in response to that comment, the author of the article, he's wrestling with this very question. He, he, he says this. He says, quote, was it that? Was Salvador Ramos evil? Or was he an unhappy young man who stuttered, had a lisp, was bullied and mocked by the other students, and came from a dysfunctional home with a mother who used drugs? He's wrestling with this very question of, are there actually evil people, Augustine? Or are people merely corrupted by the world around them? Rousseau. So which is it? In any any field from consulting to medicine to tech to whatever, you name it, people will tell you that the first step in solving any problem is to actually define what the problem is. In medicine, how can you treat someone if you don't first diagnose them? If you're a car mechanic, how can you fix a car if you don't know what the problem is? And the same is true when it comes to evil and sin in the world. The first thing we need to do is define the actual scope of the problem. And from what I'm going to argue from scripture in just a minute here is that the prevailing cultural view is insufficient. It doesn't actually describe the full scope of the problem. And in in fact, culturally, there seems to be an attempt to minimize the problem. And we minimize it by suppressing the idea that humans can perform evil acts purely because they want to, or even can't help it. If evil only exists you know, out there in the world around us, then all we need to do is just fix the structures of society that we've put in place that promote evil. And I'm not saying we shouldn't fix structures in society. That's not my point. My, my point here is that that's insufficient. It's a minimization of the problem. And minimizing this problem, it can actually make us feel good about ourselves. Because if we minimize the problem, then maybe through our own human ingenuity, we can just come up with our own solution. And and somewhat ironically, I, I would argue that our desire for an independent solution not only won't work, 
It's actually what caused the problem in the first place. And the problem of sin and evil in the world, it stems directly from following a desire for independence. And that brings us to where we are in Genesis 3. So different here from the proposed solution by society of merely changing our societal structures, this passage in Genesis 3 actually provides an accurate diagnosis for why sin and evil exist. But just as it lays out the scope of the problem, it also lays out God's proposed solution. And this solution is comprehensive enough to actually tackle the magnitude of the problem. And so we see in verse 1 here that the the first thing that happens is, is that Satan comes onto the scene. The serpent comes onto the scene. Satan enters the chat. And and we might be asking here, where did the serpent come from? If you have read Genesis 1 and 2, there's no mention of the serpent. It kind of just appears, starting in chapter 3. And and the answer is, we actually don't know where the serpent came from. And the reason we don't know is because there is no rational explanation for the origin of evil. And, And this is not unique to Christianity. There's no belief system, no religion in the history of the world that has ever been able to rationally explain where evil came from. And and the reason for that is because sin and evil are fundamentally absurd. There is no rational explanation. Augustine, who who I mentioned earlier, he said that finding a rational explanation for sin is like trying to see darkness or hear silence. Evil is an inexplicable parasite on God's good creation. So in verse 1 here, we see the serpent, the serpent says, did God actually say? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this gets right to the heart of the nature of temptation, does it not? Did God actually say? And so the question we should ask in response to that is, well, what did God actually say? And and to see that, we have to go back to chapter 2 in verses 16 and 17. And I'll read those here for us. And and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this is is tricky, because Satan says, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Makes it more restrictive, does he not? And and Eve, then, we would expect her to repeat back what the Lord had actually said to them back in chapter 2. And so Eve tries to correct the serpent, but she's actually still wrong. She doesn't correct the serpent, or Satan, in the right way. Because she says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. So Eve actually makes it more restrictive. And all of us daily receive this question of did God actually say? 
And we need, ha- we need to know how to respond correctly when we're faced with temptation. Did God actually say that he'll never leave me or forsake me if we're tempted to despair? Did God actually say that he'll provide for me if I can't find work right now? Did God actually say he's enough for me when I'm feeling lonely? Did God actually say? And when we're facing temptation like this, we need to know what God actually said. It's the importance of being in the word, of being in scripture, of meditating on God's law. Day and night, as the psalmist says. And so we move on here in verses four and five. And the, and the serpent, Satan, continues by questioning God's punishment. You will not surely die. For God, what God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And what Satan is doing here is Satan is putting God on trial. This is the entire project of the Enlightenment, by the way, if you're curious, modern philosophy. Satan is putting God on trial. And it's Satan's attempt to usurp the throne of God. He's saying, Adam and Eve, you can survive without God. Through your own reason and ingenuity. You can do it on your own. You're not surely going to die. The punishment, meaningless, not actually going to happen. And what he's doing here is he's asserting that Adam and Eve, as human beings, can judge, using their own reason, whether or not what God says is true. The problem of evil and sin in the world, as I said a few minutes ago, stems directly from a desire for independence. And and so far, they've been dependent on God for everything, for their very breath. That's how they were created. And, and uh, one analogy I like to use for, for this is, I don't know if you've ever been water skiing before. Uh, water skiing is, uh, I, I enjoy it a lot. It's actually very fun. So basically, if you don't know what that is, you've got a boat and you're maybe on a lake or something like that. And there's this rope that's coming off the back of the boat. And you have someone sitting in the water and they've got skis on. And they're holding onto the rope and the boat kind of pulls them around. And you're, you're skiing on top of the water. Water skiing only works as long as you are holding on to the rope, as long as you're dependent on the rope. As soon as you let go, as soon as you try and water ski independently, you just sit in the water. You're dead in the water. There are some things in our, in our lives, in our culture of independence, we often think, oh, independence is great. We need complete freedom. There are some things in our lives that only work through dependence. The only way we can flourish as, as image bearers, as human beings, as the people of God, is through dependence. And so how does Eve respond? In verse 6, we see Eve responds by seeing, desiring, and then acting. And my question in this scenario here is, where was Adam? Adam was seemingly nowhere to be found. 
Oftentimes, you know, we read this passage and um, we're tempted to just, all right, all Eve's fault. It was her fault. She ate the fruit. Adam is uh, an innocent bystander in this scenario. And, and Adam, he's complicit. As complicit, if not more complicit than Eve. Because we know that Eve, Eve had responded to the serpent's question of did God actually say with, with a somewhat true answer, which means Adam would have communicated to her what God actually said. And second, we see that she gave some to Adam and he ate. So he must have been at least close by, if not right next to her. There's an overwhelming sense of passivity here on the part of Adam and his role in the world. And so then in, in, in verse 7, we see the entrance of shame into the world. Adam and Eve knew that they had sinned. And while, while this event here in Genesis 3, it's a one-time event in the history of the world, it, it's still paradigmatic for our own experience. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve must have felt as soon as they sinned? Can you imagine how they must have felt? Think of how you feel after you sin and you know you've sinned. The shame and the guilt that you feel, the unworthiness that you feel. We should be able to empathize with Adam and Eve here. Oftentimes we, we think, oh, you know, if I was in Adam's position, if I was in Eve's position, you know, I wouldn't have done it. I would have resisted. Would you? Would I? The, the philosopher Nietzsche thought that eliminating God would eliminate shame. And this passage actually tells us the exact opposite that eliminating God creates shame. Shame enters in the world because of a desire for independence from God. And so what do they do? It says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And these fig leaves right here, this is their attempt to minimize the problem. It's saying we're going to make the problem smaller so that we can come up with our own human ingenuity, the right solution that will just cover it all and everything will be okay. Tim Keller talks about the inadequacy of fig leaves this way in his most recent book called Forgive, which I would highly recommend, by the way. He says, your perfectionism is a fig leaf. Your work is a fig leaf. Your desperate need for approval is a fig leaf. These are desperate efforts to deal with the sense of unacceptability, of unlovability that we all have. But God wasn't done. He still has a plan for redemption that he's about to lay out. And, and in verse 8, we see that they cover their sin through hiding and then in verse 9, God pursues them. And this, this pursuit, it's not fire, brimstone, judgment. There, there's an element of sadness here. 
Where are you? Where did you go? And this is how God responds to your sin. He found you in the midst of your shame. He pursued you in the midst of your guilt, in the midst of your shame. He called out to you in the garden because he wanted to walk with you again in the cool of the day. He missed you. Not only does God love you, he likes you. There's a difference between those things. Sometimes it's easy for us to believe that God loves us, but not that God likes us. You know, it's kind of this arm's length love. You know, I sent Jesus for you. Great. You love me. But would you actually like want to go hang out and have dinner with me? He likes you. He likes to spend time with you. And he missed that. But in verses 12 and 13, Adam and Eve spread blame. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And then starting in verse 14, we see all the characters are before God. Almost in like a courtroom scene. You've got God here and you've got Adam, Eve, and the serpent kind of with some distance between them. And God gives each character a curse in 14 through 19. And these are curses. These are punishments. But at the same time, there are also plans for redemption and for victory. So in verse 14, he starts by giving a curse to the serpent. So what is the curse here? And the curse here is ultimate humiliation. Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. But there's still grace here. Because God says, I will put enmity between the serpent and Eve's offspring. So if we have this courtroom scene and Adam, Eve, and the serpent over here, God is saying, no, 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 Adam, Eve, you're with me. You're on my side. And the serpent is going to be over there by himself, and there's going to be enmity between those two parties. And notice, who's putting the enmity between them? God. I will put enmity. Only God can rectify this problem. There's nothing that we can do to come back on God's side on our own. We can't put enmity between us and sin and between us and the serpent. Only God can do it. Christ takes this curse on himself as well. The seed of the woman will suffer, but the serpent is the one who's ultimately defeated. Christ is the seed of the woman here. The promise of a personal redeemer to represent all of humanity. Someone who will come and undo the works of the devil, as it says in 1 John 3. We know from Romans 5, Christ is the second Adam. We have the first Adam in this passage who sinned and whose sin was given to all of humanity. We all sinned in Adam, but Christ is the second Adam, the perfect one who came, lived a perfect life so that his righteousness could be imputed to you and your sin would be taken on him. So that's the curse on the serpent. We also have a curse on the woman. And so what's the curse here in verse 16? There's pain in childbirth, and then there's an upending of God's design for the way a husband and a wife should relate to each other. But there's still grace here. 
Because while sin brings forth death, remember God promised sin will bring forth death. While sin brings forth death, God in his mercy still allows the woman to bring forth life. Even though there's pain, new life can still be brought into this broken world. And secondly, husbands and wives are invited by Christ to love each other self-sacrificially. The restoration of this created order for the way husbands and wives are supposed to relate to each other. And just as Christ took the curse on the serpent on himself, he also takes this curse on himself. Through the ultimate pain in childbearing. We are adopted as children of God, as sons of God. We are born as his children through his suffering and death on the cross. The ultimate pain in childbearing. Christ took that on himself so that we might live. And then he curses Adam as well. Verse 17. And this curse is pain through toils and death. If you, if you do any sort of work with your hands or you work in the agriculture industry, you see this curse, feel this curse firsthand. If you work in any other sort of industry, that you'll see it in other ways. But there's also grace here. Because just as sin brings forth death, man is still able to produce food that leads to life. And that sustains life. Life can be sustained even through painful toil. And Christ takes this on himself as well. We see in John 6 that that Christ is the bread of life. He sustains our spiritual lives through his spirit. And he could only do that because of his suffering and death and resurrection. So in verse 20 and 21 here, we see Adam responds in faith and God clothes them. The fig leaves were inadequate. The fig leaves were an attempt to minimize the problem and to put a minimal solution on it. But God gives them just a taste of what's coming in terms of their ultimate salvation. And that taste is already way better than the fig leaves ever could be. If you had to choose between being clothed by fig leaves and animal skins, it's a no-brainer. You're going to choose the animal skins. His solution is already way better, and it's only temporary. Because at the end of time, when Christ returns... You are going to be clothed in robes of righteousness. No no more fig leaves. No more animal skins. Robes of righteousness. You know, one of the things we don't really like to do is talk about sin. It's, It's not really a topic that's going to make you a lot of friends in the lunchroom at work. It's not really going to get you a lot of likes on social media. But as as sobering as this passage can be, it it levels the playing field for all of us. In in Genesis 1, when when man was created in the image of God, we were all created radically equal. Radically equal. Men and women, radically equal. But then in this passage, we're also all equally sinful. 
We've all equally fallen. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no human heroes in the Bible. Not one. Not Adam, not Noah, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Peter, not Paul, not Mary, not Martha, not one human hero in the Bible. Because for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are all equally dependent on God for our salvation. John 6 says, Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Only through realizing how deeply sin exists inside of us and in the world can we begin to even understand how loving God's solution is for us. But he sent Jesus Christ to be born into this world as a baby, as a man, so that you, he could empathize with your weakness. He was tempted as you were. Adam was tempted in the garden. Christ was tempted in the wilderness. And each time Christ was tempted in the wilderness, he responded to the question of, did God actually say with exactly what God actually said? And he did that for you. Because he loves you so much. And he wanted to walk with you again in the cool of the day, in the midst of the garden. Christ is the only hero in the Bible. He's the only hero of the Bible. He's the redemptive center of the entire Old Testament and New Testament. And this passage in Scripture is what kicks that off for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so, so, so good to us. You found us in the midst of our shame. You found us in the midst of our sin. You lived a perfect life. You died on the cross. The death that we deserve And then you rose again. All for love. All so that you could be with us. And that we could be with you. For all eternity. Would you be with us now as we continue in worship? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.